Please join with me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We are well over halfway through um, our study in Ecclesiastes. And as we look at chapter 8, let's look to the Lord once again and ask for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan your work in vain. So, Father, we, we believe, but help our unbelief. And, Father, we sang that you are your own interpreter and that you will make it plain. And so, Father, would you open our eyes to see your truth, um, open our ears to hear your truth, open our minds to know your truth, open our hearts to receive your truth and strengthen our hands and feet to walk in ways aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen. A few years ago, a good friend um, told me about a devotional book that he was using called uh, Daily Readings from All Four Gospels, Morning and Evening. It's a collection of commentaries really from uh, the Anglican bishop, uh, pastor, commentator, uh, J.C. Ryle, um, and in it, um, the editors have brought together his, his commentaries from the four Gospels and working um, their way through it. In fact, I'm still just in the early chapters as the new year started. And the other day, uh, February 4th, uh, this is how the morning uh, reading started after you read Luke 3, 15 through 18. This is what Ryle says. One effect of a faithful ministry is to set men thinking. Verse 15. The cause of true religion has gained a great step when people begin to think. Thoughtlessness about spiritual things is one great feature of unconverted man. It cannot be said in many cases that they either like or dislike the gospel. They do not give it a place in their thoughts. He continues, let us always thank God when we see a spirit of reflection on religious subjects coming over the mind of an unconverted man. Consideration is the high road to conversion. Thinking, no doubt, is not faith and repentance, but it is always a hopeful symptom. Now he's speaking about unconverted men and women, boys and girls. But just apply that to people who do have new hearts. We need to also think. One of the things that drew, I know, my wife and me to the Reformed faith was you didn't check your mind at the door of the church. You were helped to love the Lord with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Um, here we are in Ecclesiastes, it's difficult, it's perplexing, at times it even seems contradictory, doesn't it? But if anything, it gets us thinking. It helps us to stop and think. It's a wisdom book. We see the, the writing here of Solomon, the preacher. As we've been saying, Ecclesiastes is helping us to stay anchored to our calling. What is our calling? To live by faith, to 
to walk by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight. One day we're, we're going to live by sight. Until then, it's by faith. And we're living in a world full of sin and misery, frustration, futil- futility, confusion, and chaos. And so I believe this portion of God's word helps us to stay anchored because we have to walk by faith. Ecclesiastes is presenting the necessity of fearing God in a fallen and frequently confusing and frustrating world. The preacher wants us to know, God wants us to know that life without God, life without Him is empty, but life with Him is fulfilling. We've seen that Ecclesiastes starts and ends with this Statement that everything, all is vanity. It's not that it's meaningless, but it's like mist and vapor and smoke and fog. It's like breath that you try to capture, but you can't. It's here one moment and gone the next. We are seeing as we work our way through Ecclesiastes what the preacher said at the end, that there are words of pleasure, words of pain, Words that help us gain perspective to fear God and keep his commandments and words that call us to prepare for death and judgment. Two weeks ago, we were in chapter seven. Uh, We were looking at the scheme of things and we joined the preacher in his quest to observe life once again under the sun and his effort to find the scheme of things. And from our text, we saw that in the scheme of things, That the fear of God rescues us from two dangers. That wisdom is needed but hard to find. And that man was made upright but he fell into sin. Now Ecclesiastes, as we said, is a good word. But it doesn't have the last word. Knowing from the rest of scripture, thankfully, that in the big scheme of things, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And in the scheme of things, it was at the cross where God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And the sermon, you may remember, ended with a call to come to Jesus, to come to the cross because it's the place of rescue for both the overly righteous and the overly wicked. And today we're going to join the preacher on his ongoing quest of observing life under the sun and as he turns his heart to try to understand what's going on. Listen as I read verse 1. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Here at the beginning of chapter 8, we see that wisdom is beneficial. You heard it from Proverbs 4. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. Whatever you do, get wisdom. Get insight. And you see these rhetorical questions that are here. Uh, They're for effect. They're drawing attention to the man who is wise. Wisdom is rare. It's drawing attention to the man who's wise, who's known for his ability to interpret things. Now, when given a choice, um, you know, those um, 
When I get an eye exam, you know, they put those things up and you have to vote like which one you can see clearly and they change all these lenses. And I kind of find those kind of tests fascinating where you also are given a, a choice, you know, black, white, and you choose or hot, cold, and you choose. But, but think about this. If given a choice between wisdom and foolishness, kids, what should you choose? Wisdom, yes. All of us should choose wisdom. It's a good thing. Foolishness is a bad thing. Wisdom is a good thing. And it can even be seen outwardly, interestingly, right? Outwardly in the expression on a man's face. So what do people know about you from your face? I mean, did you read, did you hear what said? That wisdom can make a face shine and the hardness of a face can be changed. It can be softened by wisdom. Now, you can't carry this uh, to an extreme. You can't press it too far. I mean, J.I. Packer makes the great point that some people's faces are just physically shaped in such a way that they look gloomy all the time. And some people's faces, like our quarterback, right, for the Bengals, how old does he look? 12, 15, you can't do anything about that part of your face, but you better believe it, people can read our faces. My wife can tell me what I'm saying, though that's not what I'm saying with my words. We all know that, right? Wisdom actually shows up on your face, and it's good, it's beneficial. And so right off the bat, And further into the chapter, the preacher is going to remind his reader of the benefits of the blessings of wisdom. He shows us that wisdom is beneficial. It's a good thing in at least three ways. First, it reminds us to submit to authority. Join with me as I read verses 2 through 9. The preacher continues, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. These verses were difficult to translate. Uh, They are hard to understand. Um, One commentator going into this section says this, quote, wisdom has to fold its wings and take the form of discretion, content to keep its possessor out of trouble. Discretion, then, he goes on, is the chief face of wisdom in this situation. You see, 
This is about a, a man who's a counselor to the king, this king who has all power. And Solomon, the preacher, is, is providing instructions of what wisdom looks like in this case. The wise man is to be cautious, but nonetheless, he's to maintain his integrity. You think of Daniel before the king being bold. No, we're, we're not going to do that. If you kill us, that's okay. We're not going to do that. You, you think of Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king who was distressed over his, his people's city in ruins, right? The wall in ruins. And he, he approached the king, I think, he had, he had prayed for a long time on protracted prayer. And then there was a spontaneous prayer. These men knew how to approach the king. And the wisdom here that we see in this section is this, knowing what to say and when to say it. Earlier in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, what did we hear? There is a time for every matter under heaven. And again in chapter uh, uh, 8, we see, uh, uh, chapter 5, a time and a way for everything. Wisdom. Wisdom to, to know what to say and wisdom to know when to say it. I keep going back to this proverb that helps me in, and I believe helps all of us when we, when we see the dilemma, answer not a fool according to his folly. And then the very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly. How do you know? How do you know when it's best to speak or not speak? How do you know? takes wisdom and to be sure none of us get it right all the time we blow it we speak when we should be silent we're silent when we should speak but scripture gives us enough examples of men and women who who pray and trust God and, and are wise and speaking of proverbs uh, sometimes my housemates would after I said something, would remind me of Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. In other words, they said, you shouldn't have said what you just said. It would have been better off if you'd have said nothing. Here in this description, we see the blessing of civil government, God's common grace, his ordering of the world. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. I mean, the preacher is talking about this man, this wise man having to interact with the civil authorities. And here's what Paul says in Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in, his, who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
For the same reason you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Jesus, remember, commends a centurion who knew that he was a man under authority and he had authority. Jesus said, I've never seen faith like this in all Israel. This man understood. He was under authority and he himself had authority. Now, when we look at Romans 13, people automatically, often, rightly go to Acts chapter 5. Well, we must obey God rather than man. Remember the context? Religious men are telling the apostles to stop preaching Jesus. When it comes to things that affect the truth of the gospel and the life and ministry of the church as it's aligned to the gospel, yes, we obey God rather than man. But here... The preacher is telling the wise man to do what you can, do what you should to help and assist the king. So as we move, before we move on, ask yourself, um, how are you doing at submitting to authority? And we're all under authority. Those of us that have been in the military, we worked for people and people worked for us. Kids, mom and dad and your family are the authority. We have bosses at work. There's relationships of submission rightly. How are you doing with respect to authority? Or are you your own authority? The preacher would advise the wise not to be their own authority, to be of service, to be discreet, to ask for help, to know when to speak, when to be silent, what to say, what not to say. And oh, do we not all have great regrets of what we've said and when we've said it? Thanks to what we've already sung about, we come and ask for forgiveness. I mean, how could any of us make it without forgiveness, really? How do your unbelieving neighbors make it without being able to ask for forgiveness and to give forgiveness? Well, second, wisdom not only calls us to submit to authority, but wisdom calls us to fear God. Let's pick up in verse 10, going through verse 14. The preacher continues, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. 
Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Well, here's another call to fear God. It's not the first time we've heard it. It won't be the last time. Remember in chapter 3, verse 14, whatever God does endures forever. God has done it. Why? So that people will fear before him. In chapter 5, the preacher says, God is the one you must fear. It's every now and then God shows up in the perspective of the preacher. And then we've already seen the end of the the book, chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. And how does he sum it up? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Here are the circumstances the, the preacher observes and sees. The evil... Evil and the wicked are praised. Uh, Evil increases when people don't see it punished. Life is not fair. Look at verse 14 again. The wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Oh my, isn't that a a, a, a theme of the Psalms? You think of Psalm 73 with Asaph. Just his foot had almost slipped when he considered the prosperity of the wicked. Throughout even Ecclesiastes, there's time and again when, wait a minute, I thought the righteous live long and the wicked don't live long. Why is it you know, that only the good die young, so to speak, the preacher would say? Life is not fair. And, and look at the bookends of this section, verses 10 and 14. All is vanity. And yet, what do we read in the middle? I know. You notice this? doesn't say I saw and observed, verse 12, I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. You know, in the end, the right thing will be done. In every case, God guarantees it. Isn't that a great comfort? That even though on earth, under the sun, There is a maladministration of justice. There are evil people that, so to speak, get away with things. There are righteous people that are hungry and suffer. In the end, it's all made right. In the end, justice will be done. God will guarantee it. Look at the faith here of Solomon being on display. In the end, it will be made right. In the end, it will be well for who? For the righteous, that is, those who are righteous, that have a righteousness by faith that Luther, Martin Luther, came to know. But it's not going to be well for the wicked. We've been reading that book, what... What Does It Mean to Fear the Lord by Michael Reeves? Um, a month or two ago in uh, the, sum, in the uh, church quote of the week, I think I included this, these words from 
Sinclair Ferguson in his short little book called The Pundit's Folly, Chronicles of an Empty Life. Um, the fear of God, how would you define it? It, it? For those who fear God, it will be well. For those who do not fear God, it, it will not be well. How would you define the fear of God? Well, listen to how Ferguson starts off. The fear of God is in some ways, it defies our attempts at definition. Because it is really another way of saying knowing God. It is a heartfelt love for Him because of who He is and what He's done. It's a sense of being in His majestic presence. It is a thrilling awareness that we have this greatest of all privileges mingled with a realization that now the only thing that really matters is His opinion. To have the assurance of His smile is everything. To feel that he frowns on what we do is desolation. To fear God is to be sensitive to both his greatness and his graciousness. It is to know him and love him wholeheartedly and unreservedly. My friends, with that kind of definition in mind that God is both great and gracious... That the thing that wakes you up in the morning is to receive his smile and the thing that you do not want to do is receive his frown. With that in mind, do you fear God? Do I fear God? Now, does verse 14 that I did read, does it... Go with what precedes it or what follows it? Uh, commentators are split. Um, I think it precedes. I included it in this section on fearing God because it sets us up for something rather startling. Verse 15, because third, wisdom declares that even in a world where all is vanity, we are nonetheless to be joyful. Look at verse 15. And I commend joy, for man, has had, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. In view of everything, the preacher commends joy. New American Standard says pleasure. New International Version says the enjoyment of life. Earlier in chapter 2, we read nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now why? Why would the preacher have to commend joy? Because life, as he's been observing, right, is hard, it's difficult, it's perplexing. Wait a minute, the wicked get away with stuff, the righteous suffer? It's frustrating. I'm on the hamster wheel at work. My kids, I instructed my kids, and now they want nothing to do with me. The preacher says, in this life, under the sun... Be joyful. Consider the joy of the ordinary, the, the daily, the routine, eating and, and drinking. Small expectations, simple satisfactions. 
are the soundest. Joy cannot remove the toil of dark days, right? Days lived under the sun. But finding joy, being joyful can surely help mitigate it, right? What brings you all simple pleasure, simple joy? Do you have anything in the midst of this crazy world that brings you joy? Here, the preacher is commending eating and drinking, finding enjoyment in toil. Eating, drinking, simple things, joyful things with believers, with unbelievers. God's common grace shows up when we take joy at simple things. Notice, and I looked at every translation, it said, and I commend joy. It got me thinking. What he's doing is he's recommending joy. He's recommending joy over and over again. My friends, Let us commend joy to one another in the midst of this sinful and fallen world that just doesn't work the way we expect, the way we hope, the way we work for. The third aspect of wisdom, be joyful. We started off by saying, Joy, or excuse me, wisdom is beneficial, but now as we look at these last two verses, we're going to see that wisdom is bounded. Solomon, the preacher, continues When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that this pursuit of wisdom and observations of life actually leads Solomon to sleeplessness. I think it leads many of us. To sleeplessness. As we observe life, we're restless. Sleep doesn't come. And did you notice when it comes to aspects of God's work and God's ways, man cannot find out and will not find out? Interesting. Two cannots and one will not in these two verses. God's work baffles us. You know, Isaiah would say God's ways are higher than our ways, right? Job, once he became humbled by God's questions, where were you, Job, when I laid out the foundations of the earth? Tell me, do you know? What was Job's response? Repentance. God's ways are hidden. They baffle us. It 
God's ways are not a tale told by an idiot, but what if this is a tale told to idiots? Idiots like me. Idiots like all of us at times. A wise man may claim to know in his pride, in his boasting, in his arrogance, he may claim to know, but look at how chapter 8 ends. He cannot find it out. Wisdom is a beneficial thing. It has benefits, but it also has limits. So, What's your response to being told that even the wise man can't know, will not know? I mean, does that mean give up? Call it quits? I want to speak a moment about knowing and not knowing, being sure and unsure, being certain and uncertain. You know, being uncertain about that which is certain is dangerous. But so is being certain about that which is uncertain or being rigid about that which is indifferent. It's dangerous. Yesterday I started reading a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage. You know on the battlefield, the medic, the Corbin have got to assess things. Who needs the help the mostest and the firstest, right? Who's going to bleed out? That's where I'm going. The guy who stubs his toe, I'm not going to pay attention to. Why do I bring this up? Because the wise man has a weakness, doesn't he? He thinks he knows it and knows it all. And and Solomon, God through Solomon is putting him in his place. Notice and remember If I, Paul says, understands all mysteries and all knowledge. In other words, if I am a wise man, able to plumb the depths of mysteries, I have the library of Alexandria in my back pocket. I studied under Gamaliel, the high priest, the teacher, the rabbi. But have not love, I am nothing. Has Ecclesiastes got you thinking? Has it got you thinking that yes, wisdom is beneficial, but it is, yet it is bounded? It is good, but it is not ultimate. You see, Ecclesiastes is going to lean forward, isn't it? It's restless for wisdom to come. Wisdom, of course, is not a a thing. Scripture makes clear wisdom is a person. Paul would write the church in Corinth that Christ is what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. Today, in our Sunday school class, we looked at this statement. There is, actually it'll be next week when we look at this statement, there is, purely speaking, no such thing as grace, 
But the grace of God comes to us no more and no less than Jesus Christ comes to us. In the biblical gospel, we are not given a thing, we are given a person. And of course, we saw that in Titus, for the grace of God has appeared because Jesus has appeared. Do you remember these words of Jesus from Matthew 12, also almost word for word in Luke 11? Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The wisdom of Solomon. What does scripture say about Solomon? The wisest of men. But Jesus continues, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Wisdom isn't a thing. Wisdom is not something that you you check out and you turn back in. Ecclesiastes is, is leaning forward to the arrival of wisdom in a person. And think with me for a moment about Jesus and his wisdom. Jesus submitted to authority. He humiliated himself by coming to earth. He grew up in his family, listened to his parents as they raised him. He was in the synagogue regularly. He even submitted to unjust authority, knowing that, as he told Pilate, you would have no authority if it not had been granted to you. Jesus, as the wisdom of God, submitted to authority. And Jesus, as the wisdom of God, feared God, loved his Father. Eavesdrop on Jesus' the Son's relationship with God, his Father, in the Gospel of John. It is astounding. He loves his father. And his father loves him. And Jesus chose joy. In Luke, you see of Jesus with meals, with sinners, sitting, reclining at table, enjoying food and drink with people. And of course, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus chose joy. There's a verse as we wrap up in 2 Chronicles 20 that I go to often and have for years. It was a time when God's people were surrounded they were in trouble. It was a desperate situation. And they, they went to the Lord and they did not say, God, give us wisdom to know how to respond. They said, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. My friends, when was the last time you went to the Lord in prayer and said, I don't know what to do? but my eyes are on you. It's really the wise person who knows they don't have the wisdom and their only hope 
is the Lord's intervention. God's people don't really need to be given wisdom. We need to be rescued. Jesus rescues us. He is the founder and the finisher of our faith. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. My friends, take your eyes off of something called wisdom and put them on a person who is the grace of God, who is the power of God, who is the wisdom of God. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you my friends, are your eyes on Jesus. He's gentle and lowly. He's strong and kind. And all those who come to him in repentance and faith, he will never, ever cast out. Rest and rely on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.